So remember that time when uh, Batman was Moses and the movie was directed by the guy who did Aliens? Yeah, that was that, was that time. So this, is, this was the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. Uh, and, and this is a fascinating take on the burning bush scene. Uh, again, if, if you're not familiar with the story, Ridley Scott takes some liberties with how that this, well, the story in general is told, which everyone who tells the story takes liberties with it, so that's no different. But this is kind of interesting. And when I first saw this, it took, I, wasn't, I was like, oh, that's just weird. Like, why do you do that? And what's with the rock slide and the mud? And how, what's all that about? But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of was trying to wrap my head around what might Ridley Scott be doing here, the more I was kind of intrigued by it. And particularly the emphasis in this scene on Moses and his identity. And how the, you know, the child who represents God in this is particularly concerned with pressing in on how Moses sees himself. We're finishing up a brief series that we've been doing called Deliver Us, where we're looking at this figure, Moses, who looms large in the scriptures. And we're looking particularly at the ways that God shaped him into the person who would ultimately not just lead the, uh, the Hebrews to freedom, but also like, be the person whom God kind of delivers the law to, who establishes what will be the ruling kind of ethic of the Israelites for generations. What was it that, that shaped him, that made him who he was? Now, there's a lot more here. I mean, we're ending today in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Old Testament. It goes on for multiple books. Uh, so I'd encourage you uh, to read along, uh, to follow this story at home, to kind of read it for yourselves. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back counter. Please grab one and take it with you. Uh, we're going to look at Exodus, uh, some excerpts from chapter 3 and chapter 4 this morning. We'll have it up on the screen for you to follow along. Um, but again, we're kind of picking up, if you were with us last week, we looked at the beginning of the burning bush narrative, and we're picking up right after that and kind of finishing off this interaction between Moses and God in the form of a bush that's burning. All right, so uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? 
Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so you can perform the signs with it. All right, so again, uh, if you were with us when we kind of started off last week, we talked about the fact that when God begins this conversation with Moses, he starts by defining his character, by explaining that he is a God who, who sees and hears and is concerned about the plight of the Hebrew people. Then he moves on to Moses' character. He tells Moses that his plan to deliver these people out of 400 years of bondage, of slavery, is going to be realized through a person. Now, that sounds crazy as it is, but for Moses in particular, the craziest part was that he was that person. That it was him that God was going to use. If you remember up until this part, if you're familiar with the story at all, Moses doesn't have a whole lot on his resume to commend him as the guy for the job. Of note in Moses' experience are killing somebody, failing to mediate a conflict successfully between two slaves, successfully escaping from uh, an empire that wanted to kill him, and learning to be a shepherd as a second career. Not exactly a resume that would make you think deliverer of people from the most powerful empire in the world. Not really what you would think God would be looking for. And he was fully aware of this. In fact, one of the things that I love about this story, that is so great about this encounter, is how raw it is. It's so easy for us to approach people like Moses, to have this idea that, that what a kind of a, a spiritual person, someone who has a, a relationship with God, that, that they're simply kind of a yes man or a yes woman, right? That, that God says something and they just salute and do it. But that's not what we see here with Moses. We see him arguing with God. First time they've ever met. And here they are going back and forth. Probably not how you would have imagined that someone like Moses would respond. But I think that's why this story resonates so much. Because Moses is not some holier-than-thou figure, though he does some pretty remarkable things. Moses is just like you. He's just like me. He's got tons of doubts and fears and questions struggles with his own identity, lots of excuses. He's not this amazing figure. He's a dude who's running away from something. I think this is one of the reasons why um, when it comes to a holiday like Memorial Day, it's so compelling to us. The thing that that happens every every time we come to a holiday like Memorial Day is 
what, we hear stories, right? People's stories about their experiences. My, my kids came back from school and talked about how there was a World War II veteran who came in and spoke about his experience in World War II. I, I remember my grandfather, who was in the Navy, um, and, and just, I loved asking him questions about what his life was like, because he was, he was drafted at, at 18, and he was dating my grandmother. And he ended up on a battleship that, that had to fight off Japanese planes that were trying to fly into them. They, they were the first ship into Pearl Harbor after it was attacked. And I remember listening to those stories, and what was so compelling about his stories was that I knew this man. And to imagine what it would have been like to be in that, to know this person and to be in those places, this ordinary guy who had lots of flaws in this extraordinary situation. So compelling. And to imagine, what, what would I have done if at 18 I was drafted to fight in a war? What, what would that experience have been like? How would that have shaped me? It's compelling. And I think that's what's so compelling about the Moses story, is that it invites us to see someone who's like us, encountering God and being invited to do this thing that's much bigger than him. Where the creator of all things sees the oppression of this people, decides to do something about it, and enlists this normal, everyday guy. And Moses' response is probably what you and I would respond. Who am I? Why me? It's, it's fascinating. And, and if you notice in the back and forth, God keeps talking about what God will do. Moses is completely incapable of kind of processing that part because he can't get past himself. In the entire conversation, God's like, hey, I'm going to be with you. Here's how this is going to go. There's a staff. If you read the story, I kind of skipped around it, but he actually goes through and, and kind of talks about some of the signs and wonders that he will use to communicate to Pharaoh what's going on. He's telling all this, and all Moses can say again and again is, you've got the wrong guy. I, I hear you. Sounds good. think you should do that. Just not me. Who am I? He's completely self-conscious. God's inviting him to be a part of this huge redemptive thing that he's doing and he can't see anything but himself. Now, we don't know exactly what made Moses who he was. What his experiences were up until, like between the time when he was kind of in the, the basket on the river and then when he was like 40 and killed the Egyptian guard. Like we don't get a whole lot of what happened in there. So we don't know what shaped this self-conscious guy, what formed his identity. You know, maybe he was somehow kind of dealing with this sense of abandonment from his parents because, you know, yes, his, his mom was his wet nurse and she probably told him stories about the way that God provided for them, but still she did stick him in that basket and put him on the river and now he's brought up by these other people. So maybe that was part of it. Or, or maybe he was teased by the other kids because they were all Egyptian and, and he was somehow different. Looked different, 
They knew there was something off about him. So, so maybe that was hard. Maybe he still hears the voices of, of those people he tried to, to mediate conflict with, those Hebrew slaves who he came in to, to try and help work it out. And they said, who are you? Who, who do you think you are? What right do you have to come in and do this? Maybe it was those voices kind of bouncing around in his head, and he, he just thought, well, yeah, of course. Who am I? Whatever it was, somehow it boiled down to this clear kind of gut reaction that you have the wrong guy. I'm not the one you're looking for. And I don't know about you, but I, I kind of empathize with Moses here. Now, I really empathize with Moses here. I know what it's like to kind of get tripped up over the story you keep telling yourself about who you are. To be unable to, take, to move forward because all you can hear are the voices in your head saying, yeah, you're not, that's not you. You, you can't do that. You don't have what it takes. Other people are more qualified than you are. They're more gifted than you are. They're, they're, you know, <laughs> you're a failure as a, as a, as a dad, as as a son, as a sibling. I mean, look at how these other people, look, look at how they treat their parents. Look at the relationships they have with their parents. Look, look at how those husbands are with their wives. Or, or look at how that, that guy does his job and the way people respond to him. Like, you're just, you're not them. I know what it's like to, to hear that voice in your head saying, who, who do you think you are? What makes you think you can do this? And my guess is, some of you do too, that you have that voice whispering, sometimes screaming in your ear, yeah, you're, you're not, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're not capable, you're not lovable. And it doesn't matter, in fact, most times those, those statements aren't grounded in any kind of reality. But it doesn't matter because we hear them over and over and over again, and we begin to believe that they're true. I was listening to an interview with Heath Ledger, uh, the, the late actor, um, another Batman character, that wasn't intentional. Um, <clears throat> but he was doing an, an interview with PBS uh, talking about just his experience in, in acting in various roles. And it was kind of striking because, you know, as you, if you know Heath Ledger, as you can see, he's a good-looking guy, a very accomplished actor. Um, there's a lot that would make him seem like the kind of guy, like, ah, his life must be pretty sweet. But as he talked in this interview, he was sharing honestly about having this, this level of self-doubt and anxiety every time he, he started a new movie. That no matter what the role was, he walked into it convinced that he just couldn't do it that he didn't think he could be the person they wanted him to be, that he couldn't do the job the way they wanted him to do it. And while that kind of drove him in some ways, in some of the, the remarkable performances that he had, it also led to significant periods of anxiety and unease and sleeplessness and personal struggle. Because of this story he told in his head, no matter how successful he was, how much money he made, how many, how many awards he won, 
just didn't know if he could be good enough. My guess is some of you know what that's like. Now, it is entirely possible, of course, that none of that is what Moses was thinking. Um, It's entirely possible that Moses was simply rightly assessing the situation and realizing he was in a little over his head. That God was coming to Moses and saying, hey, I want you to go up against the largest empire known to humanity, and we're going to win. And like most of us, Moses may have simply gone, yeah, I'm not so sure I like those odds. Like, it's cool, you're, you're God, which by the way, again, to give Moses a little bit of slack, he didn't really have any experience with God up until this point. This is the first encounter. And while burning a bush and not having it burn is fairly impressive, it doesn't necessarily directly correlate with rescuing people from 400 years of servitude, you know, under the largest military force on the planet. So you can understand why Moses might look at that and say, I don't know that I can handle that. And I think we'd have to excuse him because I think most of us know what that feels like at some level, right? Like, you look out on the world and you see all of these needs, all of these opportunities, all of these things that you think, man, somebody ought to do something about that. Whether it's, it's poverty or human trafficking or, you know, disease or people finding, like, no meaning or purpose in life or whatever it is, you look out and you're like, ah, I wish that were different. I wish somebody would do something. I wish, I wish that, that God would, would do something. But it's too big. That's way bigger than, than I am, than, than I can handle. Maybe someone else, but, but not me. And while that isn't, you know, it's fairly reasonable kind of conversation to be having with yourself, there are big problems that no one person can handle on, themselves, uh, on their own. It's also kind of just a different version of the who do you think you are question, right? Like, it's focused on me and my inability and my overwhelmedness and my own self-perception. And the problem is that we still can't see past our own story. We still stop with my perception of myself and the world. And we don't allow it to be shaped by a bigger story, by God's story, by the thing God is doing and inviting us to get caught up in. And so God's answer to Moses time and time again when Moses comes up with the excuse is, go, I will be with you. I know all of that stuff. I know, I, I know your flaws, I know your failures, I know all the ways that you are jacked up and messed up and have, have, have nothing to offer. Go, I will be with you. That God's plan to save these people, he was determined to carry that out through this ordinary, flawed dude. Not, not to go around him, but through and in him. That this was as, as much about Moses as it was about these people. But in order for Moses to be a part of it, he had to be willing 
to get his eyes off of his own story, off of his own self, and open himself up to God's story and what God was doing. It's kind of like when Jesus says in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's biography of Jesus, chapter 16, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What he's talking about, that imagery, this take up their cross, which is this, this death imagery, the cross is this instrument of death. So if you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing in the world now and forever, it begins with dying to yourself, with laying aside your story and joining mine, being a part of something bigger than your small life. It's, it's not that you stop being who you are, but it's that you don't simply live out of that. You join into this bigger thing that God is doing, and you allow in that God to define you. And he does that by his presence, by being with you. God is with you. Now go. It strikes me, not as that surprising, that when you see Jesus at the end of the Gospels send out his disciples, his students, his followers into the world, he says something very similar. He says, go into all the world, help other people become students of mine, bring beauty and life and justice into the world, and as you do that, I am with you. That this ragtag group of people who just failed royally, like they just, they just, when Jesus was killed a couple of days before this, they abandoned him. They hid in a room in fear that Jesus sends them out into the world with the promise that he'll be with them. That the way that God is choosing to bring about the beauty and life and justice in the world now and forever that God intends to bring about is through broken, flawed, messed up, ordinary people who don't have their acts together but are willing to get their eyes off of themselves and join his story and what he's doing and stop making excuses because we can't get past our own selves. People who are willing to die to ourselves so that we can live for him and with him. So I was listening to um, the, the BS report the other day with Bill Simmons' report. BS stands for Bill Simmons, um, of course. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, he does a lot of, uh, he, he talks a lot of basketball, talks a lot of sports, uh, which is why I like to listen to him. But he also sometimes interviews other people. And I saw that he was interviewing this guy named Scott Harrison from uh, an organization called Charity Water. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll listen to this. It, I didn't know really anything about Charity Water. I thought, ah. Eh, I don't know. We'll see if it's, any, if it's interesting at all. If not, I'll switch. And so I started listening to the story, and Harrison was talking about the fact that, you know, he kind of grew up in this um, kind of a, a Christian household, but it felt really kind of smothered by that. And at 18, he left, went to New York City, and became a nightclub promoter. And for about 10 years, made a whole lot of money throwing parties and going from club to club to club made lots of kind of really wealthy friends, had pretty much anything that he wanted. Talked about the money, the women, the drugs, 
the alcohol. I mean, it was just kind of hedonism, right? It was just anything he wanted, whenever he wanted, all the time. He said after a few years, it just started to feel meaningless. I mean, sure, there was, there was fun stuff, but really, what was I doing with my life? I just felt purposeless, purposeless. Like it didn't really matter. And he had this kind of almost like a burning bush moment where one day at noon, when he's, he's around 28 years old, he, he's going to go home and go to bed. It's noon, and he needs to go get five hours of sleep so he can wake up around five and then go and start promoting the next club. And he walks past hundreds of people in New York City who are just on their lunch break. And he looks at this kind of mundane activity that most of us experience every day, and he goes, what am I doing with my life? These people they're going to go back to their job and they're going to create something and they're going to do something that matters. And what am I going to do? I'm going to go take a nap for five hours and then go to another party and do some drugs and drink and help other people do the same. And so he said he had this almost, really a a conversion, this recognition that he wanted to live for something bigger than this. And so at 28, he said, uh, you know, he, he grabbed a backpack and a Bible and he jumped in a car and just drove. Eventually kind of found this, uh, this nonprofit that took doctors to northern Africa and, did, uh, and, and basically set up clinics to work with people um, who would come from all over the country uh, who didn't have access to health care. And so he did this for about a year. And as he did it, he began to notice it, it, was, it was just a, a tragic situation where these doctors were doing amazing work, but they never had the resources that they need, whether in terms of staffing or money, to help everybody who needed help. And so they were constantly turning people away, and it, it was just heart-rendering, and he's looking at this, he's like, what, what can we do? And one of the things that he noticed is, is that they were all drinking really, really nasty water, water that looked kind of like chocolate milk. He's like, oh, that's horrible. And of course... They kind of recognize this has got to be one of the fundamental places where people are getting sick and they're struggling, but what do we do about it? There wasn't really any strategy for that. And he didn't know what to do. I mean, he was, you know, at this point, 29, 30 years old, had spent his professional career as a nightclub promoter. He had no skills to offer this. He's like, you know what? For my birthday, for his 30th birthday, instead of having people bring me presents, I'm going to ask them to just donate money toward building wells for people to have clean water. And so he threw a birthday party, invited all these people who were on his list to promote these nightclubs, if they would come, and and some people showed up, and and he ended up raising like $15,000 to do this thing. And he was like, oh, that's great. And so they they took baby steps to kind of build this thing that eventually became this nonprofit called Charity Water. But it was it was founded on this kind of fundamental principle where he wanted 100% of everybody's donations to go to building these wells. He didn't want there to be overhead costs. And so he decided to build an organization based on kind of the simple financial structure of there's two bank accounts, one for the, the wells and one for the, uh, the overhead staff, salaries, things like that. And he said, you know, it worked for about two years where he's like trying to fundraise for this, but they got to the end of this like two-year period and he realized they had about $800,000 in the account for building wells. That will build a good many wells. But they were about to be unable to pay staff salaries. And they were going to have to fold as a company. And so he's looking at this and going, oh, this, 
I guess, you know, I guess we failed. This business model doesn't work. And he explained, and it, was, it was fascinating to hear him talk to Bill Simmons. And he's like, and so I, I started praying. And, I, and it, he's like, it was really faithless praying. I didn't really think God would do anything. But I'm praying, saying, God, like, God can, like, something's got to give here. Something's got to work. And he said he, he met this, this uh, tech entrepreneur. And they met together for like two hours. And he kind of pitched this thing to him. And he, he said he walked away from the meeting just feeling horrible. He's like, I don't think the guy even liked me. Um, Next day, he gets an email from this tech guy who said, Hey, Scott, uh, I just wired a million dollars to your account. I believe in you. You just need more time. And Harrison talked about this, and he said, You know, for a while, I thought what I really needed at that moment was money. And on a practical level, of course, I did. He said, But looking back, it wasn't so much the money. He said, I needed someone to believe in me. I needed someone to come alongside of me and say, no, you can do this. This is possible. And I want to help you make it happen. And it strikes me in this interaction with God here that God keeps coming back to this, no, Moses, there is no plan B. The plan is you. And I'm going to go with you and we're going to do this together. That God fully and completely believed in Moses. Now, I know that sounds kind of cheesy, um, that God believed in Moses. But I think it's true. Not that, that God believed that Moses, like whatever Moses set his mind to, he could do. No, he knew who Moses was. But that God believed that if Moses said yes, it would be something that would utterly transform him and history as we know it. Not because of Moses, but because he said yes. And I think what we see in Jesus as we fast forward and and look at his invitation to go into all the world and his reminder that you're going to do this because I am with you is this same message that God believes in you. No matter what the voices are whispering in your ear about how much of a failure you are, about how many times you've tried and it just didn't work out, no matter that you've got a past that you're ashamed of or that you don't have a resume that's worth anything, God believes in you. God is inviting you to join him in his redemptive work in the world of bringing life and beauty and justice. Not because you're good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. Not because you have all the gifts and all the skills. But because it's good for you. And because all God needs is a yes. All he needs is for you to be open to say, okay, I'll set my story aside. I'll stop focusing so much on me and and what I think about myself. And I'll allow myself to get caught up in what you're doing in the world, now and forever. I think one of the core messages of this engagement that Moses has with God is that God believes in you and God is with you. So now go 
and join God in bringing life and beauty and justice. I know you don't feel like you have it in you, but that's okay. God knows, and he's with you. Now, if we're going to do this, there's two things it's really important for us to do. Number one, we're going to have to rewrite our narratives about ourselves. For most of us, the negative voices in our heads are the default setting. They're not something we consciously kind of call up. In fact, if we could, we would smother them. But we can't. They just keep coming up. So we have to intentionally work to rewrite the script. And that's hard. That takes effort. Um, There was a quote I used last week from a guy named David Foster Wallace, who's an author, and there was a line in it that I wanted to to use again this morning. At kind of the end of, he he talks about, he was talking about what we worship, but I think this kind of translates to a lot of different things. He says, on one level, we all know this stuff already. And I think it's true about most of us, when we hear those voices, if we could step back and go, is that actually true? We'd probably say, nah, I don't know that that's actually true. But it doesn't matter. It's the default setting. And so the trick is, Wallace says, is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. The trick is, how do we take what's true and put it in front of ourselves again and again and again so that we learn what's true, that God is with us? And so we need to develop patterns. We need to develop ways of regularly changing our narratives. And I wish I had some incredibly innovative, amazing new thing to offer you, but I don't. This is why for millennia, Christians have regularly, followers of Christ have regularly kind of shaped their lives around the scriptures, prayer, community, practices like communion where we remember Jesus' death, baptism where we see the new life we find in Christ. These regular practices that remind us that no matter what the voice in your head says, God is with you. God believes in you. He's inviting you to join him. That's one. We need to rewrite our narratives. We need to develop practices where we we change the way that we think. And number two, I think we need to learn to pay attention to where we are moved with compassion. One of the things that... Now, now all of us feel differently. Some of us are feelers. Some of us are thinkers. Like, you know, some of us are moved with compassion over, like, you know, Hallmark commercials. Um, some of us are rarely moved by anything, right? So there, there is a continuum there. Um, but for all of us, there are moments where we feel pulled towards things. There are, there are particular things. There's lots of needs out there. But most of us have something that really draws us, that compels us. But we can often either feel overwhelmed by the thing itself or be so consumed with life that we feel incapable of doing anything about. And I think maybe one of the invitations for those of us who are looking to to follow in the way of Jesus and are kind of trying to listen to what God is saying is to learn to pay attention to those moments when we feel nudges of compassion, when we feel drawn towards something, and to begin to ask in those moments, what would it look like for me to believe that God might have something 
God might be inviting me to join him in some way. Change this to make a difference here. How might God be inviting me into his story here, his redemptive plan for this situation? For some of us, it might be something as simple as like, yeah, it could be writing a check or, or volunteering with an organization. For some of us, it might be taking a meal to someone who's in need or, or we see a single mom or a single dad who's struggling and we, we volunteer to show up and to help out. For some of us, it, it might be something bigger. I don't know exactly what the answer is for you, but I think for each of us, it, it could be a good practice to learn to stop and pay attention to those nudges of compassion, those moments of empathy, and to learn in those moments to pray and to ask what God's invitation to us might be and how we might be able to join what he's doing. 